0: I think the most intimidating experience that I've ever had was standing in front of a judge, all right? So I was 16 years old, just a delinquent, right? Just a terrible kid. Um, I got a speeding ticket. <laughs> I got a speeding ticket in a, high, in a school zone on my first day of school when I'm 16. Like, I'm talking, I got pulled over right in the front entrance of the school a school of about 800 people all shuffling through watching me be pulled over by a police officer. Just humiliating. I, I could go into a lot more of that experience, but that's not the, the highlight that I want to make. So the result of this speeding in the school zone is that I had to appear before the judge. And it was everything that you would expect, right? So I get to the court, and you have the old person in a black robe. You have the gavel that's on the desk. I mean, just the whole shebang, right? Like everything that you would think of going and standing and appearing before a judge. And I had to wait in the courtroom with all the other speeding criminals like myself. So I was just sitting there, last name Wilson. So most everybody else gets to go before me. And then I have to wait for my name to get called, finally get called up. And the judge just starts to grill me, all right? Sixteen-year-old trying to make a point in my life, right? And just feel it. So, were you aware that you are speeding in a school zone? Yes, I was aware. I'm aware that I was speeding in a school zone. Why were you in such a hurry? What did you What did you have to do? Why did, where do you have to get? It's like, well, it's first day of school. I had to get to school. And then she hits me with this question: Why do you think your time is more invaluable than another person's life? Dang, right? Like. Just stick a knife in me, wiggle it around if you want to for a little bit while I stand in front of everybody else while you do this thing. And so after my public shaming, the judge asked me, um, what is my plea, right? So a cop has to show up. If the cop that pulled you over doesn't show up, like you can, like, argue that you didn't do it and you can have it up. The cop was there, right? Shows up. So I plead guilty, then the judge reads me my sentence which was a fine and then a mark on my record all right so i'm sure that the fine was just like 2 to 300 dollars i'm 16 years old feels like thousands of dollars right so get this huge dollar amount my eyes are just like bugging out of my head the mark on my record would expire but the judge conveniently conveniently left that out for me, right? So I'm just like, man, I gotta mark my record. I have thousands of dollars that I have to pay right now. My life is over. And so if I didn't pay the fine on time, she also lets me know that there will be a warrant put out for my arrest. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, it was a school zone, right? Like, what? Is going on and so I'm the judge is just this absolute peach and I'm about to wet my pants and so I go to the burster's office I cut them a check and I leave and I won't tell you the words that are going through my head when I leave because they wouldn't be appropriate for me to say from the stage and so just a miserable intimidating experience appearing before the judge now your view of a judge may not be quite as extreme is a story of what I just shared. But I would imagine that it's not too far off in terms of the favor that I experienced with this judge, right? You probably have this idea of someone that's cold, that's insensitive, impersonal, harsh. Like, am I hitting, am I checking all your boxes, right? Like, kind of probably what we think of when we hear a judge. Now, here's what we need to understand, all right? Get this. The Bible calls God a judge, now, not the thing that probably like wakes us up and gets all the fun feelings going and stirring inside of us when we think about passages that talk about God. We like to, we love to go to the passages that talk to God about his father. We love to go to passages that talk to us about being a friend of the living God. We love to go to passages where he's this redeemer who comes and sets us free. All these passages we love, but when you get the idea of God as judge, I don't know, right? Like maybe it wants to make you throw up in your mouth a little bit. It's kind of how it hits me. But here's what Psalm 75 7 says. says, for God is the judge. He brings down one and he exalts the other. If you look throughout the Bible, God is described as the divine legislature. He sets the rules. He's also the divine bookkeeper. He knows and keeps every record of what we do. And then he's also the definitive lawyer. He interrogates and prosecutes the guilty. Now the passage we're looking at Tonight is the first instance that we see God act as judge in all of the Bible. So Adam and Eve, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we worked through the passage Genesis 3, 1 through 7, where Adam and Eve disobey God's only command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see that Adam and Eve, that give in to Satan's temptation, and they eat of the fruit of this tree And we see God's response to their sin in our passage this evening. And it's as if the garden turns from this place of just majesty and beauty into a courtroom. And we see three movements throughout our passage that we're going to read through tonight. You see there's an interrogation. You see that there's a sentence. And then you see there's aftermath after all of it. But rather than our perceptions of a judge, the idea that I kind of cast before you of my view of a judge, we see that God as judge is very different and it's actually great news for us. Great news for us. And so here's what I just want us to do. I want to unpack this passage together. I'm going to read the passage. We'll stop. We'll marinate in it for a little bit. And I want us just to see how God as the Ultimate judge is the best news that we could possibly receive. All right. So we'll start with the interrogation that we see in verses 8 through 13. So a little context Adam and Eve, they've disobeyed, they've ate the fruit. The Bible tells us their eyes are opened. All right. They're opened and they understand that they are naked. And this used to mean something good, that there is full transparency, that there was. Comfort and trust in God and one another. But now, rather than being vulnerable in a good sense, they're, they're vulnerable to external threat. Their eyes are opened to such thing and things and they run and they try to cover themselves up with fig leaves that just don't seem to quite cut it. And so we pick up in verse 8 and we get to see how God responds to Adam and Eve. So here's what it says. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So immediately you see the chasm that sin causes in our relationship with God by Adam and Eve running from God, hiding from God creates distance and separation. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And then as we see Adam and Eve's response, we see the chasm not only between God and man, but now we also see the chasm that's created between man and woman, all right? So the man replied, the woman you gave to me, you gave to me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And so God turns his gaze now to the woman so the Lord God asked the woman, "What have you done?" And the woman said, "The serpent deceived me and I ate." So we see God's response to Adam and Eve. It's the confrontation that God brings to Adam and Eve after they have committed the first sin. And so the question we have to wrestle with, why is it good news that God is our judge? And here's two things that I think we see in verses 8 through 13, all right? God is judge. We see that it's good news for us because he's both caring and he's patient, he's caring and he's patient. God's disposition is classic God that you see throughout all of the Bible and the way that he responds to Adam and Eve here, all right? So first one, God cares. Satan, Satan came to Adam and Eve like a predator in verses 1 through 7, all right? You see this both in Satan's deception as well as his deceit. So you see deception in the way that he disguises himself as the serpent. He's hiding in some form or fashion his identity in order to try to get into Adam and Eve's world in order to bring them down. And then you see Satan misrep- misrepresent truth in the way that he causes questions in Adam and Eve. Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? misrepresentation of the truth that's not what God said at all he said you can actually eat of any tree just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then he says you will not surely die if you eat of the tree just causing he's it's an attack on God's integrity of what Satan does before Eve and then he moves on in fact you'll become like God you'll know good and evil and so you see just this deception and this deceit. Satan is coming and he's praying on Adam and Eve. But God is wholly different here. He's completely different. God comes to Adam and Eve like a good father. If you look at verse eight, it says he comes walking in the garden at the time of the evening. He comes to enjoy Adam and Eve. He comes in to walk and be with them and enjoy God's creation with them. Enjoy the relationship that he's created them for with himself. He comes to enjoy them. And then he's concerned for their well-being. You see in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree? Look, whenever you have kids and you, they come home with mature information, you know that something is up, right? Right? So Adam whenever God calls out to him, "Where are you?" and he said, "I heard you and I was afraid and I ran and I hid because I was naked." Immediately something pops up in God's head as a good, loving father who cares for his kids. Who told you that? Where did you learn this mature information? It it didn't come from my home. Where did this come from? Didn't you, didn't you, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to? Like he, It's almost as if he's saying, "Like, look, I told you what would happen if you did this. Please don't tell me that you did this. Please don't tell me that you disobeyed what I commanded you because it was for your good. This is exactly what happens. And so in the midst of the fall that we see in Adam and Eve... The way that God comes in his approach to Adam and Eve shows his care for them because he's like a loving father who wants to be and enjoy his kids, but also wants what's best for them. He comes with this caring, tender, gentle heart towards them. Satan's aim is towards their destruction as the predator, but God's aim is for their well-being. And so it's good news for us that God is judged because, look, he cares for you. He's not this impersonal judge that doesn't care what happens in your life. It's the exact opposite by what we see here in verses 8 through 13. He immensely cares for you. But not only is God caring, we also see that he's patient. All right? So pause and consider the situation that's going on here. All right? God has given Adam and Eve everything God spoke the world into existence and then what does he do he shares with Adam and Eve the creation that he's the one that spoke into existence he shares the tree uh, the food on the tree gives every tree to them for them to enjoy except for one he shares his authority as they are to rule and exercise dominion as God's image bearers in this world. And then he even shares his work with them, that they are to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and then subdue it. He's given them everything. And then in one instance, we see the serpent, with the serpent, the man and woman, they turn on God and they throw it all away. So how does God respond to this betrayal (laughs) in the midst of giving them everything? And then in one place of temptation, they turn on God and they throw it all away. Look, God doesn't storm in with a heavy hand Remember verse 8, he comes walking into the garden. He doesn't come running, he's not quick and he's not swift. He comes walking in, and then we see his patience in the way that he questions Adam and Eve. Look, God knows, he knows the answer. He comes in not because he's trying to figure out what has happened. He knows exactly what has happened. Yet God does not come in with accusations. He actually comes in just asking questions. Where are you? Who told you? Did you eat from the tree? God doesn't rush in agitated. No, he's slow and he's patient with Adam and Eve here. And look, it's the same way with us. And you see this time and time again about God throughout all of Scripture, all right? So Exodus 34, 6 says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Look, God is known for his patience among his people throughout all of Scripture, This is spoken to Moses as he meets with God on the mount, but then you see it rehearsed over and over and over again throughout all of Scripture. It's in the songs that God's people sing to God as they worship Him, as they are on their way to Jerusalem to go be with the living God in the temple, to experience His presence. They sing these songs as they're with Him. They sing about His patience and His loving kindness towards them. This is how people have experienced God throughout all human history. And it hasn't changed for us either because Peter, Apostle Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, gives warning to us about these cynics that come up in the church, warning against them in the way they try to speak against God. So, 2 Peter chapter 3, he says this Where is his coming that he promised? These are the cynics that are speaking of God that promised he would come back for us again. Where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they've been since the beginning of creation, meaning since sin entered into this world, we just see over and over again all the same things that are happening. But here's how Paul or Peter responds in verses 8 through 9. He says, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay. But look at this. But he's patient with you. Why? Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Look, it is good news for us that God is judged because, look, one, he cares for you. He knows what's going on in your life. He cares for you. He wants what's best for you. He wants you to thrive and flourish in this life, which we've seen in these verses. But secondly, we also see that he's patient with us. He's patient with us because he wants restored relationship with us. And this is how he responded to Adam and Eve. This is how he's responded to his people throughout the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we see the most definitive explanation of this in the way that we see Jesus who's entered into this world who lived died for us and since God hasn't come back yet he's being patient because he wants more and more people to turn to him to receive the goodness and grace that is found in Christ Jesus so we can experience restored relationship with God that's the kind of judge he is isn't that good news But further, we see that good news to us that God is judge isn't just found in the interrogation that we see of the questions that he brings to Adam and Eve, but also in the sentence of sin that we see in verses 14 through 19. So let me read it, and then we'll dive in. Verse 14 says this. So God has approached Adam and Eve. He's confronted them about their sin, bringing questions. We see the care, concern, patience from God. And now he steps in and begins to speak into them because of their sin. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you're cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You'll move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So immediately after this passage, throughout the remainder of Scripture, you are constantly reading the Scriptures wondering whose seed is this person? Are they of the seed of the serpent or are they seed of the woman? And so you read stories throughout all of the scriptures and you're constantly wrestling which seed is this from? And so the Bible will sometimes give it very clearly to you and you'll see this line and this pattern that happens all the way to Jesus. But it's this two distinct different heritages that you see from here on out and you see it here in the judgment of verses 14 and 15 of the serpent. Then he turns his attention to the woman in verse 16. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You'll bear children with painful effort, and your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. I'm going to touch on this in a second, so let me just keep going. Verse 17 turns his attention to the man. He said to the man because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you do not eat from it look the ground is cursed because of you you will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you are taken from it from from for you are dust and you will return to dust. So where's the good news here, right? Well, it's good news for us that God is judge, look, because he deals with our sin fairly. He deals with our sin fairly. Look, goodness cannot overlook wrong. It can't. It cannot overlook wrong. It defies justice, all right? So, This has been the source of a lot of our social outcry that we've had in recent years. So if you have been someone that's gotten up in arms about lots of government bailouts and who those bailouts went to because of the way that they were using them and you saw that there was just a disbalance in the way that you could see justice that was being served, that's part of what is stirring up inside of you. If you are rising up in arms about death and injustice that we've seen in streets because of the injustice that's been shown by color of skin, then this is what you've seen rising up inside of you. If you've seen failed leaders, pastors that get a pass in this world and you just see your spirit just rise up in anger, it's because goodness is being overlooked and wrong is not being dealt with in the way that it should be dealt with. And this is why we've seen demonstrations, look, right and wrong ways that have been demonstrated in this world that have risen up because we have not seen goodness carried out in the way that our souls cry out for and long for in this world. Therefore, goodness isn't the absence of justice, but the fair application of it. And the Bible speaks to God's goodness and equity over and over and over again. Proverbs 11.1, 1, I think, is one of the most clear ways that it describes it. It says, Dishonest scales are detestable to the Lord, but an accurate weight is his delight. And God's sentence of sin here is evidence of this truth that he deals with our sin fairly. God deals equitably with all three parties, all right? So consider the consequences of their sin here in the sentence that he gives. So Satan, he comes in the form of a serpent with pride. So you see a serpent that assumes, he's the subject that assumes the role of master here, trying to exert authority over Adam and Eve, who God alone has given authority to rule and subdue God's world. And the sentence here is humility, that it's going to have to go on its belly and no longer can it act in pride, but it's going to be the lowliest of all of his creation. Then Satan intends destruction for Adam and Eve. And so what's the sentence? Well, ultimately he's going to be defeated by the woman's offspring. You intended destruction for this woman, for Adam and Eve. Your consequence is that you will ultimately be crushed by the offspring of the woman. Fair. Fair. This is, this is fair. Then he turns to the woman. And you have to understand this in the idea of the creation mandate that's given in Genesis chapter 1, where he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And so God has created woman with the mind-blowing ability to fulfill this, uh, this creation mandate. Women can produce life in and through their body. Just mind blowing what the body of a woman can do in terms of creating and developing and producing life in this world. And so, what is the sentence that happens here? Well, there's pain in childbearing. The woman betrays God, turns her back on God. The life that he's offered to her to walk and to live into the creation mandate. And since she's turned her back, this is the rightful sentence. The woman also gave the fruit to the man. And so we also see that there's now relational conflict that happens in this world. We all feel this, right? We all feel this. Then God turns his attention to the man and again, in light of the creation mandate, God declares if Adam having turned and rejected God, we see before this rejection, before he creates Eve, that God brings all of creation before Adam for him to name all the animals whom he has formed out of the ground. And so the sentence here, in the light that God has, man has betrayed God, the sentence is that his Labor that he exerts over the ground now is going to be done in pain and toil and hard work and sweat. And the ground is going to work against him. And what used to work with him will now be opposing him in the way that he carries out his work here in this world. Look, God handles sin fairly in every instance. Look, this is why the coming of the kingdom of God is such good news to us, okay? Now, this is really weighty. This is really heavy. But we should look at the fairness by which he's dealt with all three parties. And when we hear about the coming kingdom of God... And we see and experience the darkness in this world, the injustice, the partiality, the dishonesty, the inequity, the prejudice, all of these things that work inside of us that whenever we see it in this world makes our souls want to cry out for something else. The coming of God's kingdom is the answer to all of this. Because the goodness will be supreme, look, because God's the one that rules, His character will be carried out through all of his creation. No longer will the kingdom of darkness have a place in this world, but it will finally and definitely be put away by the coming kingdom of God, and we will see and experience what our souls long for on a regular daily basis, the rule of goodness in this world that no unfairness will be here evermore again. Injustice will be entirely done away with. And so we look at this, and it should produce inside of you this longing for the kingdom of God. Because God will finally be here, physically present, carrying out goodness, no longer injustice. All the things that we are hoping for, the way that we want to be treated and dealt with, will finally be done for eternity. And so, look, it's good news for us that God is the only definitive judge because he deals with sin fairly the thing that we want and long for deep in our own souls will finally be the experience that we've wanted and longed for since we lost it in genesis chapter 3 all because god alone will be king it's good news for us so it's good news to us that god is a judge because he cares It's good news to us because he's patient. It's good news to us because he is fair in the way that he deals with us. And as good and true as all this is, it gets infinitely better in the aftermath that we see in the final two verses that we're looking at tonight in verses 20 through 21. Here's what it says. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, what we get here is the aftermath after the sentence of sin, right? It's not entirely what you would expect the aftermath to look like, right? So, We would think that there's just coming condemnation, like there's judgment and they're going to have to deal with all the sentence of what they have just experienced, which we see play out throughout the scriptures, but we get glimpses of of redemption in aftermath, actually. It's not what you would anticipate after all of what you've just heard the sentence that's been given to the three different parties. So the three things take place in these short two verses. You see Adam name Eve. You see, God supply clothing, and then thirdly, you get God clothing them, actually putting on the clothes that he's prepared for them. And look, it's the best news for us that God is judged because it means there's hope for us. That's what we see. We get glimpses of the gospel from the very beginning pages of the book of Genesis, from the very beginning of the scriptures, we see these hopes, these glimpses of hope that we will actually get to be with God, physically present in a restored relationship with him, again, just in these two verses, all right? So look, Adam names Eve. What does the name of Eve actually mean? It means life, all right? So before that in, in the interrogation, we see a lot of finger pointing, right? We see a lot of the blame game that's going on. God approaches Adam, asks where he is. How did you, did you eat of the tree? And then Adam, what does he do? He says it's God's fault and that it's the woman's fault that it's like it's not his fault he's shifting blame here and then you see the same thing with the woman pointing at the serpent there's no responsibility there's no ownership of their own sin there is a commentator that I was reading that this past week as I was studying this he says that he no- he notes that all this finger pointing by Adam and Eve show their allegiance allegiance lies with Satan rather than God because they're not owning their own sin. But in verse 20 here, you see a dramatic shift that takes place. Because Adam names his wife Eve, which means life, mother of all the living, it shows that Adam believes the words of God in his sentence over Satan. That God is going to carry out his promise that there is going to be a seed, an offspring of the woman that will ultimately come and deal with the great oppressor that is Satan. And so as he looks at Eve and he sees and he names her, he's giving hope by naming her that she is the mother of all the living. Showing the one that produces life that brings me back to God is coming from this woman and I'm placing my hope and belief in the very words of God the allegiance that shifted away towards Satan as he was trying to find this alternate way of life, trying to become God himself apart from God, now he shifts back and he's trusting in God's provision. And it shows and it signs and it points to a restoration that happens with Adam. But how, right? Like, like we discussed, wrong must be accounted for. For good, God to be good, wrong has to be dealt with. And that's exactly what we see in God's supplying of the clothing, all right? So the Bible reports to us that God made clothing for the man and woman from skins, all right? This implies sacrifice. All the Bible-important smart people will point to that this shows and is pointing towards the sacrificial system that you see in the Old Testament, that life payment is laid down for the sin of someone else. And here you see payment for sin that's made on behalf of Adam and Eve. God doesn't just sweep sin under the rug. In fact, he makes the payment and justice is enacted because we see someone's life was laid down for Adam and Eve. So restoration is signaled in the way that Adam names Eve. We see the first sacrifice that takes place in all of Scripture. It's a payment for sin. And then you see the result in God clothing Adam and Eve at the very end. God does for man and his wife what they could not do for themselves. See, Adam and Eve at the awakening of their eyes of their eyes, state of being naked they try to deal with their shame and so they go and sow fig leaves to try to cover themselves but we sow, we see that they are inadequate but here we see that God can will and does sufficiently deal with their shame God makes adequate clothing that properly clothes over them. And it's a foreshadowing of the shame that Adam and Eve were dealing with in light of their sin. God sees it. He says, I can do something about it. He's made the sacrifice on their behalf. And now he clothes them with these skins that he has prepared for them. And so we see hints of the gospel from the very beginning of the Bible. We see these great reversal that's enacted here. Throughout all of scripture, you see people pointing back to this story and making points to the gospel in the New Testament and what Christ has done for you and me. So you see Paul, who puts it like this, through the one unrighteous act of Adam, death entered and spread through the whole world. But through the righteous act of Jesus, there's justification that leads to life for all who believe You have people that point to Adam and Eve who go and hide behind a tree naked and clothed with shame. That Jesus goes and he hangs on a tree. He's naked and he's the payment of sin and shame. You have people that point to the sins of Adam and Eve are scarlet and they're deep red. The skins prepared for them are as white as wool. He points to this hope, this restoration, being made clean, cleansed by the blood of Jesus that's been shed for you. This person that came and willingly laid down his life so that you could have everything that was owned to him, and that he would take all of our sin, all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our shame upon himself, and give us everything that he had earned. Martin Luther puts it like this, God sent his son into the world, heaped all the sins of all men upon him and said to him, be Peter the denier, Paul the the persecutor, blasphemer and assaulter, David, the adulterer, the sinner who ate the apple in paradise, the thief on the cross, in short, be the person of all men, the one who has committed the sins of all men. That's what Jesus has done for you. And look, you and I could add our names to that list. All our wrongs, all of our sins, all of our flaws, all of our shame, completely paid for. That's the hope that you see in verses 20 through 21. You get glimpses, you get hope of the gospel that you see teased out through all all of human history that climaxes in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so look, the response for us is like, how do I get it? How do I step into it? How, this, 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 Right relationship that Jesus has enacted for me, how do I get it? That's what to be our response to this. And J.I. I. Packer, one of my favorite authors puts it succinctly like this. This is like our application. It doesn't matter if you are not a Christian. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a year. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 30 years. It's the same response for all of us. Sometimes, for some of us, it's gonna be the first step into it. For others of us, it's gonna be the continual life of repentance that God has called us to live as we walk with Jesus and others in this life. And here's what he says, that you call on the coming judge to be your present Savior that's how you step into it you call on the judge the coming judge to be your present savior if you look throughout the new testament jesus is the judge who is to come and we will all have to stand before him and give an account but here's the beauty of the gospel that when we call on the name of jesus no longer is he's the prosecutor but he's now the defense attorney He's the advocate that stands in our place and he speaks up for us. And here's the image that you get throughout the Bible whenever you call in the name of Jesus that is no longer a criminal court that you stand in on the judgment day, but it turns into the family court because it's not condemnation, but it's adoption that happens. He declares you sons and daughters of the living God. Christ, the advocate, becomes your elder brother and he stands up for you. He says, I laid down my life for you. You are not sweeping sin under the rug, God. I've paid for it in full. There's nothing left that needs to be owed. They've called on my name. They've trusted in what I've done for them and I have given them everything, all of my righteousness, all of my glory. It's theirs. There's a district court judge Kathleen Sloan, when speaking of National Adoption Day, this is her words in the courtroom. She says, welcome to the very best hearing I get to have in this courtroom. Welcome to the very best hearing that any judge gets to have in this entire courthouse. And that will be the declaration of Jesus when all of us who call in the name of Jesus stand before him on judgment day. It's not criminal court, it's family court, and you've been brought into the family of God. Romans 8, 15 through 16 says this, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, speaking of the life and the condemnation that we live apart from Jesus. He says, instead, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, this intimate language that God is our heavenly Father and just as a good Father here on earth gives gifts to us even more so will your heavenly Father in heaven give to you the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children so it's not just we're not just left to this wandering well did i get in like, did I, did I do it right? Did I pray the right prayer? No, you get the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives with you now. You take God with you. He walks with you in this life. He seals you up, and it's, there's this affirmation that's spoken to you through the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you that says, yes, you are the child of God. You're fully in. So look, if you haven't stepped into this yet, If you're hearing this and you're like, man, when I hear God is judged, you're right. That has turned me off to God. I love some of the good things. I don't love everything that the Bible tells me. But look, what the Bible tells us oftentimes that we don't like is just very, very offensive. Because we don't want to deal with the ugly that's in our life. We want a God who does sweep things under the rug. But it is not what's best for you that that would be who our God is. It is best for us that we have a God who is good and carries out justice and and done so in such a way that he's done everything for us that there's no longer anything left that we have to do. That is the best thing that could possibly be done for us. And that's exactly who our God is because he is the judge of the world. He's enacted salvation for us. And we get to experience not just in the future, but here and now. We get foretaste of this kingdom that we all long for, get to experience it in the community that we have together as God's family, and we wait with anticipation for us to experience it in full when we get to live with God for all eternity because he is coming back again. So look, that God is judge is not only good news, it's the best news. God is genuinely concerned for you, God is patient with you. God is fair in how he deals with our wrongdoings and our sin. God is just. He's paid your penalty for sin. So look, call on Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the, it feels like the millionth time, and you keep going. Continue to call on the name of Jesus. He's your advocate, He's your elder brother, He's the one that ushers you into the family. There is no other. It's the best news to you that God is judge. Let's receive Him as such, so that we may live into the hope that comes through it. Let's pray.